Welcome to another episode of the Behavioral Design Podcast by Habit Weekly. My name is Samuel Salzer, and I'm your host. This episode is a fun two-for-one, as it's a conversation with me and the wonderful duo Kurt Nelson and Tim Houlihan. You're likely to recognize their voices as they host the popular Behavioral Grooves podcast, where they explore the why we do what we do question and behavioral science overall. Tim is the founder of Behavioral Alchemy, a consultancy in applied behavioral science built on dozens of years of working with academic partners from Carnegie Mellon to Duke to Columbia and more. Kurt earned his doctorate in industrial and organization psychology and founded his own consultancy, The Lantern Group, more than 20 years ago to focus on the application of applied behavioral science in corporate settings with several Fortune 500 companies as clients. It proved an interesting chat where we explored Tim and Kurt's journey into the field, their work, including how they've helped organizations to cope through the many challenges in 2020. And we also took a deep dive into incentives and how to structure incentives programs that lead to long-term motivation. This is very much kind of the holy grail question in many ways, especially for organizations. So um, fun stuff indeed. All right, enough with this intro. Let's get to it. Tim and Kurt, it looks like the table has turned. Welcome to the Behavioral Design Podcast. <laughs> we are, tables have turned. The tables, have, tables turned. have turned. We're a little scared, but if anyone can turn the table, Samuel, it's you. Yeah, well, you should be a little bit scared. It's good. And uh, <laughs> so obviously I'm referring to the fact that I was lucky to be a guest on your podcast, The Hill Groups, about six months ago. So it's really an honor to have you here. And so we're going to pretty much jump straight in here because what I feel like is such an interesting thing to explore with you two is that a lot of people have heard your voices. A lot of people have had the pleasure of, you know, having you guide them through a lot of good conversations with different people in the world. But I think still there's a lot of things that people don't know about you guys. And so I would say that the path that leads to behavioral science is often the path less traveled. And that has at least been the case for a long time. And I'm guessing that's probably somewhat been the case for you too. So we'll get, in, get into kind of the work you do overall today. But I thought the first thing we, we could cover is just better understanding how you both get into applied behavioral science. All right. So Tim's pointing at me. I will start. Um, so my background, I, I, I wanted to get into business. I was, I was really excited about getting into business. I went and I got a, uh, my MBA. Uh, and, and one of the courses that I took while I was getting my MBA happened to be a consumer behavior course. So I've always been interested in psychology and sociology. You know, social psychology was actually one of my favorite classes, but I took a consumer behavior class and which just blew me away. It was, it was basically a PhD level course where we, we read journal articles and I was just fascinated because you're looking at that consumer behavior and you're going, well, why will people buy something if it's $2 and 99 cents, but they won't buy it if it's $3, right? It's that, those, those little pieces. And so that, it just kind of built this curiosity for me. And that 
kind of stayed with me. I went and I started working for a company, the, the company that Tim and I met at, BI Worldwide, and uh, ended up doing some various different pieces. But that was in the back of my head all the time. And so when I started my own company and then went and got my PhD, it was like, oh, let's let's figure out why people are doing what they're doing. And that was the impetus for me. So Tim has a whole different story. Well, before Tim, you get a chance. I just want to say one thing. So obviously, you must have really loved those research papers, given that you did a PhD as well. Yes, yes, which is, you know, a little bit shows how weird I am, right? I, I will read research papers and, you know, I, I will I will gloss over all of, I will tell you this, I, will, I, I gloss over a lot of the statistical and, and the, the math part of them, but I, I love the intros and I love you know, in most of the papers, they have their their conclusions and, and next steps. And those are the parts where I'm, I'm looking at, at the different pieces to understand. But yeah, I went on, got my PhD in IO psychology, which again, is a not the psychology of people sitting on their couches, but, you know, it's business psychology trying to understand, you know, what makes people energized? What, what do you, how do you get people excited about work and various different pieces along that line? So uh, it's been a fascinating journey and I loved it. Amazing. And Tim, how about you? I was in college and had two classes back to back. One was microeconomics uh, and the and the, the class following microeconomics was consumer behavior, which was a stark contrast in learning about the rational agent, markets finding equilibrium in, in microeconomics and then leaving that and then walking into a class where we learned that if if you price something at $2.99, that more people will buy it than at $3. So I had that very abrupt and I was very aware of my curiosity at that point, but didn't do anything about it until I was at working, as Kurt mentioned, BI Worldwide in 2000 or so and selling, uh, trying to convince clients to buy incentive programs that use non-monetary rewards or merchandise and travel for the rewards rather than cash. And I said, come on, really? We're, you know, we're rational people. Let's just use cash. That will be the best motivation. And the, the, the company line was, no, it's really not best. It really works better if we use non-cash rewards, if we stay away from money. And I said, well, that, you know, that's very self-serving. So that, that doesn't work for me. And, and while my way through the organization and met a, a guy who ended up becoming my boss years later, but he said, well, look, if you're really interested, read this paper. And he handed me the George Lowenstein, Richard Thaler, Colin Cameron, Linda Babcock paper on the New York City cab drivers. And that was the rabbit hole for me. That just totally engaged me. I thought, and I wanted more of that. And he said, "Oh yeah, I got a few of those. You can read them, but whatever." I'm like, well, "No, this is fantastic!" And uh, and that that was the rabbit hole. That's what got me really deep into it. Can you just briefly tell people about that study? Sure. The, uh, so I think it was Thaler was visiting New York City on a rainy, and it was rainy in the afternoon, and he tried to hail a cab. And because he's trained in economics, he is has that rational agent thing that says when there is an increase in demand, as there would be on a rainy afternoon, there should be the market should reach an equilibrium with more supply. But that wasn't the case. He had a very hard time getting a cab. And so uh, he engaged George, uh, who said, well, we've got to get Colin Cameron on this. And then and George then also said, we've got to get a labor economist, which was Linda Babcock. And we got to get these people together to really understand this. And what what they studied was thousands of activity charts for the New York City cab drivers over. Uh, and then they compared that to the weather. And what they found was that on rainy days, cab drivers made their average daily wage much earlier in the day and they stopped working. 
So as soon as they reached their average daily wage, they said, I've had enough. I'm going to take time and go home, play with the kids, work on the basement, hang out at the bar, do all these things where they could have worked a full shift and made more money, but they didn't. And so this was a, this was a big aha, uh, you know, from a behavioral science perspective that the rational agent doesn't always exist, that we oftentimes make decisions that are not in our best financial interest. That's super interesting. And it's an amazing team of researchers on one paper. I feel like yes, if you could yeah, go to either you. of those people and you would find a lot of, you know, talking about rabbit holes, you can go to either of those. And- which was perfect. Yeah, it was, which was perfect for me because that was like, well, I started to learn about George's work and Thaler's work and Colin's work and Linda, and which was really fun because years later, I got to work with George pretty closely uh, for several years on some projects. And and then Kurt and I actually spent some time at, at Carnegie Mellon and we did a whole series of, of interviews and, you know, spent some time with Linda and, uh, and George and, and the whole department. And so it's, it's been a really fun association that all started with somebody handing me a paper saying, here, you know, I, I will put your curiosities to rest with this. And yeah. it, it stimulated them. Yeah. So Samuel, you can see there's two, two common threads here. One is, is consumer behavior, uh, for Tim getting started, but then also these research papers. So we're, we're both obviously <laughs> really weary, geeky guys that, you know, find research papers fascinating. Yeah. That's great. And just to make one thing clear, when you say BI worldwide, it doesn't have anything to do with prestige worldwide. No, no, it, it used to stand for business incentives. And right. so they went from business incentives to BI and then to BI worldwide in the uh, right. late 90s, I think it was. Yeah. I don't know if you caught that reference, but it's it's from uh, the movie Step Brothers with Will Ferrell. Oh, oh. And <laughs> <laughs> they, they start a company and they call it Prestige Worldwide. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I missed that. But now that you say it, it's like, oh, of course. I know. I was thinking, I've heard that before. Yeah. Jokes aside, I'm then really curious because that was really beautiful to hear kind of how it started. So how's it going? What, what is the state of things in the crazy year of 2020? How does kind of your work look like today? Because I, I know that you both are involved in running behavioral consultancy. I think, Tim, you're running Behavioral Alchemy and Kurt, the Lantern Group, if I believe. But I think, Tim, you're also involved there. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about how your work looked like today. Yeah, so it, it's been an interesting year, uh, to, to say the least. It has been a very, very interesting year. I've I, Luckily, um, in, in my case, Lantern Group, we've been around for 23 years. So we've, we're a behavioral design and communication agency. We do a lot of work with companies on their internally uh, engagement programs, their incentives as Tim, again, having some of that background with BI Worldwide brought me into that scheme and that that field. And then this year, uh, luckily, you know, knock on wood, everything kind of came to a halt in March, but we had these projects that were going on and they continued to go on. So we, we didn't lose any projects. Uh, again, a lot of the work that we're doing is around communication and communication became particularly important partic- uh, to their employees. So we're trying to communicate effectively using behavioral science principles about how are you engaging people in what you're saying, making sure that they understand it, that they're motivated to, to do something about it afterwards. And with COVID, there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of changes that were going on inside of those organizations that they needed to communicate. So we had a big 
big aspect of, of doing a lot of that communication work. A lot of the upfront analysis work that we do as well to try to understand what is driving those behaviors of, of their employees and various different pieces. That kind of got pushed away, but it's starting to come back up now. So we've been luckily, knock on wood, it, it has been a, a, an okay year. And we'll see. We'll see if that continues. But uh, 2021 is a, a whole nother year and it's coming around the corner really quick. Yeah. And for me, it's uh, this has been a, a really challenging year. I'm only three and a half years into my consultancy. And so I don't have the I don't have the, the rhythms and the and the, the depth of, of clients that, that Kurt has. And and it's been really fun that that uh, over the past three and a half years, Kurt and I have been able to do some work together. Uh, and uh, because of because of Kurt's generosity and just because we work really well together, it's been pretty fantastic, actually. Because of Tim's brilliance, that's why we get to work together. <laughs> well, that's not, not my generosity by any means. Uh, but uh, behavior alchemy as a, as a consultancy is 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 really focused on the horizontal application of behavioral science. So I've I've had the pleasure of, of doing projects with with nonprofits and charitable organizations for very pro-social causes, as well as startups and app developers. I spent a fair amount of time in the development of, um, of new product and marketing of, of, of new product uh, when I was at BI Worldwide and, and so have, um, have something to, to contribute there. And then as well as, you know, sort of general marketing and uh, and sales, you know, I have a fair amount of history with with sales. In addition to working on goal setting with George uh, Lowenstein, um, I, I did some work on uh, sales incentives and goal setting and rewards with Dan Ariely several years ago as well. And so we've got, you know, there's there's lots of wonderful things to, to do. It, it's just been challenging keeping companies uh, sort of on the barrel. Um, there's been a lot of projects that have been canceled this year. It's been tough. Yeah. No, it's been a crazy, crazy year for sure. Yeah. And um, I'm curious a little bit more in terms of the work. It sounds like you might do a little bit outside organization, like you say, marketing and sales oriented. But with the work you do, because it sounds like a lot of this is within organizations as well. So how to not only have people that come into the door, but actually do good work and actually feel like they're performing well and so on. So if you've done any of that type of work this year, how, how has that been this year? So I'll answer that. So we, we we're working with one pharmaceutical client, uh, and we've done a lot of work. This actually was started before all this happened. It was relooking at their entire incentive compensation philosophy, trying to understand is you know what is the philosophy that's going to be driving how we structure our, our rewards, our incentives, uh, all of those factors going in. And and we've worked with this company multiple years and every couple of years we come back just to make sure that we're that the philosophy is addressing the current needs and the marketplace and everything that's going in so we planned this back in november of last year and then obviously when COVID hit we ran into this and so when we're we're actually doing a lot of interviews with folks internal employees salespeople, etc and from those conversations that we've had people the uncertainty level within the organization is huge. And and again, this was April, May timeframe. So it was right in the, in the big, where it was hitting big in the United States. And the people were really quite scared. Then there was a lot of stress going on. Uh, and so within that, that impacted, you know, how does the organization, so we're looking at this philosophy that's going to be, you know, two, three, four year plan for this company, but we also had to address the immediate needs. And those immediate needs were really important to, to make sure that you were 
trying to calm down some of those emotional responses that the people are having, and rightfully so, and being able to ensure as much as possible that, hey, we are doing everything we can in order to make sure that you have a job moving forward, that you're going to be paid, that you're going to be able to put food on the table for your family, that you're staying safe in your work environment and all of those factors. So that was really fascinating to see how that one, you know, we interviewed over five, well, over we interviewed over 50 people and we got survey results from well over 450 people. And all of that kind of coalesced into this work that actually we just finished up a, about a month ago. So Very cool. And obviously, as Kenny, you were alluding to, is the cocktail of this year is obviously not really the ideal thing for productive work in terms of a lot of uncertainty, uh, a lot of factors outside of your control, but very much affecting your life and, and so on. Yeah, one of the interesting pieces that we found is just the underlying level of stress that people have is significantly higher than what it has ever been in the past. And and so they're fearful. And so part of that fear that we had to, that we went and we got some conversation going when we did the interviews is, you know, some of them were afraid to even complain about anything from an incentive perspective, because obviously incentives are above and beyond. And they're just at this point relieved to have a job that they're, they're going to have a paycheck. And so whatever is on top of that is gravy. And yet that's still, we understand that that doesn't necessarily drive the above and beyond performance that incentives are supposed to drive. So we had to get past that and really try to, you know, peel back some of those layers and say, all right, granted. So, but if, if the world was perfect and, and we didn't have this going on, what would you say? And oh, you know, those are, those are different conversations that, that occurred. But yeah, it's, uh, it was a different world and it still is a different world. And I think for, you know, the, foreseeable short-term future, it's going to be a different world and companies need to take that into account. You know, I'd, I just want to add to that, that it's, it is really interesting to see the wide variety of reactions that different employees have as they're struggling with, am I going to have a job? Why is my job not going as I thought it should? You know, some people believing that, uh, that they should have um, sort of all of the the bars and measures lifted because this these are totally different times. And there's another group of people who are like, no, I'm killing it. So let's, you know, pay me, you know, generously, you know, give me a raise because I'm I'm doing fantastic in this time. And it just reminds me how complex people are, not just as individuals, but corporate cultures are complex. And I, I really feel for leadership right now because this is a very, very difficult time. You've got people who are afraid to come back to the office. You've got people who are afraid uh, of not coming back to the office. And so you've got to deal with a lot of highly emotional people at this at this time. And I think that leaders need to walk a very tight rope uh, in these days. I think it's very challenging. Yeah, no, 100% agree. So I guess one thing I want to a little bit pivot to, because I've Already heard you guys dropping the incentive uh, word a couple of times. And so what's a little bit interesting, kind of going back to my interview joining the People Groups podcast, is that I feel like if I have a little bit of a, a beef to squash. <laughs> All right, okay. bring it on. Yeah, bring yeah. it on. So, so when I was on the podcast, we spoke a little bit about motivation. And I think I may have spoken the language of, let's say, Desi and Ryan's so self-termination theory. It, with the idea of, you know, money generally being a bad source of motivation. You know, the classical thing of we should get away from carrot and stick approaches. Uh, and that, that is that you maybe money is what gets people into the door, but maybe not what gets them to go the extra mile and, and so on. And 
Then listening a little bit to your after grueling session, I felt that you were not in full agreement here. There was a little bit more to, <laughs> to, to talk about here. And so I think it should be stated that thanks to, for example, like, you know, Daniel Pink's TED Talk, incentives has been getting a little bad rap, you know. They have been very simplified and a little bit, you know, put on that spectrum of good or bad versus having some form of a spectrum of like, what is what is actually somewhere in between? What, what could be actually a good incentive? So I want to take this moment and make things clear once and for all. <laughs> why, why is the idea that, that money and incentives are bad source of remuneration, perhaps unfounded? Or maybe what is misconceptions around that? And because I really want to come to when and how incentives can be used to build quality long-term motivation. Okay, so people are complex, right? So there isn't a one-size-fits-all. So we, we need to start there. And at the same time, we know that there are some universals. There are some, not absolutes, but there are some things that are common across cultures and societies and people in general. And so if we start with, uh, is an incentive, is an extrinsic motivator a good thing and I think the answer is, generally speaking, it can be a good thing if it's applied to the right situation. Extrinsic motivation is a good thing, especially when it comes to acting as a catalyst to get more intrinsic motivation going. The old fake it till you make it kind of concept, you know, in the English language is like, well, if we can just get someone to act in a particular way, even before they think it and feel it, maybe they'll start to think it and feel it. And that that's where the extrinsic motivator comes in. The other key aspect of motivation is thinking about whether or not, from an extrinsic perspective, if you're going to use a reward that is more monetary or a reward that is more non-monetary, right? Yana Gallus's work from UCLA is really good about sort of looking at the calculations that we make on that we have this automatic part in our in our brain that calculates is the re- does the reward look like it's going to be enough to offset the effort that I think it's going to to take and and what the research is pretty clear that the farther we get away from the dollar sign, the farther away we get from a monetary award, the more motivational power is inherent in the reward. So, so the difference between the, you know, Scott Jeffrey did some really great work on uh, telling reps that they could earn a trip to Hawaii, all expenses paid, or in another situation, they could earn a $5,000 trip to Hawaii, all expenses paid. And what he found is that in the second situation, when they when they were told it was $5,000, they started negotiating. Well, what hotel is it going to be at? And, and are we going to be able to fly first class? And what are the meals going to be like? And what, what are the... Whereas when it was simply positioned as an all-expenses-paid trip to Hawaii, happiness, satisfaction, motivation, all of those things were way up. And, and that got decreased when we introduced the dollar sign because it becomes more calculative. And so extrinsic motivation can be a good thing, again, to, to drive up that intrinsic motivation. But the most effective kind of extrinsic motivation is going to be further away from the dollar sign. Kurt, Kurt do you want to add to that? Well, I, I'm going to take a different tack on this. So you're talking about the end re- reward component of that, which is really important. But it also gets into, I, I think, a lot of DC and Ryan's work on self-determination theory and a lot of the research that led up to it uh, is in how you structure the rules of the incentive. How, how are you structuring how you earn that incentive? And if it is just a do this, get that, that leads to that decrease in intrinsic motivation, what they found with all their, their research on, you know, children playing games, uh, and then doing it in their free time, various different, those, those. And again, how do you operationalize what you're saying as motivation is, is, is a couple different pieces of that. 
And so it's how you structure it. And so there's been some other work, Eisenberger and Cameron, uh, you know, uh, Stajevic, they've, they've done some work and just saying, look, you can structure how you, you do this, that actually your incentives by, by earning something, it is a measure of how good you are. And so it gets into some of the autonomy and some of the, the feelings of self-worth and various different things. So it actually can in, add to your intrinsic level. And um, more more recently, there has been some really c- cool work, and I, can't, I don't remember who's who's done it. That has looked at you know a lot of that research that was done, and, and it's it's fantastic research. And don't get me wrong, self determination theory has done a lot of really great things. Uh, and you're looking at you know autonomy and and kind of this connectiveness and various different other pieces. But looking at some of that research that says, oh yeah, there's a decrease in intrinsic motivation, so that your ability to play with you know that game after you've just been paid right to do it. But they haven't looked at it from a very long term. That was an immediate decrease. And they've actually extended some of that, the, the research to look long term. And what they've found is that in many of those cases that the, you know, free time play or other ways of measuring that, uh, increase back up at least to the baseline level and sometimes even higher. So there's an immediate decrease, but long term, you may get a, a increase. So that's where I think incentives have gotten a bad rap. Is they've gotten this this rap that says, well, you you put an incentive in, and all of a sudden you're changing the dynamics of why people are doing it, and so now it becomes this calculative component. And yes, that can happen, but you can also put incentives in that don't lead to that, and that if you design them correctly, which is part of the the work that Tim and I do, is is helping companies say, let's figure out how to design these incentives in a way that is going to be effective for you, both in the short term and in the long run. And if you do that effectively, you can have some really powerful impacts. This is great. I'm loving this. So in terms of then, uh, obviously, it's always hard to generalize, but in terms of a good incentive program, is there certain principles that usually is in play? And maybe if you have an example of something that you could share. Yeah. So so one piece is just in in how you're structuring how people earn, right? So if you are putting in place that it is a all or nothing kind of thing and you have to hit a certain goal and then it's done, right, to, to earn a bonus or whatever that is, typically that is a do this, get that type of an approach. And that is a lot of the pieces of where, where it does impact your intrinsic motivation to a degree. So the more that you can set it up so that it is a reflective of saying, hey, here is how this demonstrates your mastery of this or your the, the, how good you are in this. So setting up, uh, various different pieces that you earn more, uh, the, the, the more you do various different things. A commission plan in and of itself is, is actually a pretty good plan because it, it, it bases on, all right, for everything you sell, you get a certain percentage of that. That's not a bad plan because it shows, all right, hey, the more I do, this is, this is what I get and I get rewarded for that. Um, so those are some things. Tim will obviously talk a little bit about some of the rewards that go into this too. <laughs> I will. I will talk about rewards, but first, I, the other uh, there. I think there's a there's a three things that you need to consider. First is is as as Kurt said, it's it's the design from a measure from a from a structural perspective. The second thing is 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 uh, measurement. What are you measuring? If you're not measuring the right thing, then kind of forget it. If you're simply measuring what you've always measured, then kind of so what? Uh, part of the opportunity with an incentive is to is to look from a behavioral perspective into, into the behaviors that you want to drive and focus on what are the measures that are most relevant for those behaviors. And then the third thing is the rewards. 
uh, finding the right rewards, the right levels. And, you know, we've, we've seen incentive, so to speak, incentive programs, reward programs from everyone, from people who are in poverty being rewarded for getting their kids to school and to the, their doctor's appointments. And they get rewarded with, with points that they can exchange for refrigerators and tables and chairs and things like this for their apartments up to, to sheiks. You know, the, the, the Saudi Arabian princes that own car dealerships, there are rewards that engage them in a way that it would only work for them, like, like lunch with Nelson Mandela. You know, this is 15 years ago when, he, when Nelson Mandela was alive. But, but there are appropriate rewards that are engaging for different aspects of, of our societies uh, and our cultures that, you, that if you pay attention, I think you can come up with things that are really relevant and meaningful and, and drive a lot of intrinsic motivation. I will me. add a fourth piece to that because I think there's, there's the, the last piece of this, which is communication. How do people communicate these incentives and these rewards? And oftentimes we work with companies and we interview people and they go, yeah, I earned something. I, I don't need, I didn't even know I was in the, in the, in, uh, an incentive contest or as part oh. of this piece because they just didn't have the communication that went out appropriately. Or you get the contrary, which is people won't participate because the communication is so horrible and it gets misconstrued and, or they misunderstand it. And they're the measures that Tim talked about might be the perfect ones. But if they don't understand that those are the measures that we're going after, then you run into the fact of, well, I'm only focusing on, on this. And you're going, yeah, but the incentives are around, you know, I'm only focusing on an A. Well, the incentives are A and B and C. And so then you, you don't actually maximize the impact of those, those incentives. So communication is really quite important when we think about how people take these and, and the behavior that is subsequently driven from it. I'm curious then, is there one incentive plan or similar that you've seen that's like, oh my God, this is, this is the best, best one I've seen uh, or, or a general good example I've seen in practice? Well, I, I, I'm going to push it over to Tim, but before we do that, th- I just want to just level set that there are a number of different types of incentives. So everything from, and we, we use it, the, the term pretty broadly. It can be your bonus plan, which is, Hey, you know, every month or every quarter or at the end of the year, this is part of your compensation. And so that's a, that's a different thing. It could be a short term measure that is saying, Hey, we want to focus in for the next 90 days on these key things. And as a, at the result of that, you're going to get this, or it could be just a recognition piece. And, and again, all of these are a little bit different, but I'll uh, just, just in that say case, you know, if we're talking like short-term contests, which is a lot of the work that, that Tim has done a lot of work on, uh, I know he probably has a favorite. I do. And, uh, and when I think of an incentive, I do tend to think of more short, short-term uh, activities, although uh, Kurt alluded to long-term recognition and bonus plans and things like that, certainly fall under the incentive. I also want to say that get back to Yana Gallus has done a great job of identifying a really key point that an incentive is not just a reward. It's not just a rule. An incentive is both a rule and a reward. It's the way to earn and it's the earning. So uh, I, I'd like to just point that out for listeners. The best thing that, that I've seen is, is an incentive that relies, that starts with a baseline of activity that is my individual performance. So it starts where I'm at and then says, if you can go above and beyond that in these different levels, you could earn more. And, and the ability to choose that level specifically is creates a high level of autonomy. 
right? And ownership, then as soon as I get to choose what those levels are, and, and that that's a very, very powerful thing. And in one iteration of this model, it's an all or nothing uh, choice. So if, if I were to choose the second level, uh, but performed even higher than the second level, I would still only get paid out at the second level because that's what I chose. And and that that is part of a, a patented product developed by BI Worldwide. But it's it's a fabulous aspect of of engaging this loss aversion where I say I don't want to miss out on a possibly the biggest reward. And so I'm going to choose the the very highest that I think that I can achieve. And of course we're we're leveraging opt in and we're you know, all, all kinds of confidence uh, and, and risk-taking uh, get get involved in this. But that's a fabulous model right there. Yeah, and so just to, to expand upon that, the, the way that that model typically works is, all right, so the lowest level is maybe 105% of what my previous one was. And the next level is 110% or 115%, et cetera. But the rewards that you get for that increase, they don't just increase um, linearly. So it's not like, all right, so I earn we'll just say $100. We're using money, which Tim is, is probably mad about, you know, $100 of uh, your baseline. The, the first level is at hundred, maybe 105%. The, the level two would be at 110%. Level three would be at a 115% performance to, to whatever that baseline is. But the important thing is, is that the rewards aren't necessarily linear like that. So at your 105%, uh, and Tim, forgive me for talking money here, it might be $100, right? The 110% isn't $200. The 110% would be something like $300 or $400. And then the level, you know, the level three would be, you know, 800, 900, something even, even, even grander. And then the other part is, so if I pick level two, but I, I perform at level one, but I don't get up to level two, I say I pick level two, 110% and I perform at 108%, I get nothing. And so there's that loss aversion piece that comes from, all right, I need to make sure that I choose the right level and different things. And so it's a really powerful uh, incentive structure. Uh, and it taps into, as we said, there's a number, loss aversion, autonomy, you know, a number of, of the reward type aspects of, hey, there's a, a, some really larger awards if I go bigger and better. And so you get a lot of that. It talks to, you know, my, my skill set. And so it, it rewards me for how good I am and, and, and different pieces along that line. So. Fantastic. Really love this. And I think it also speaks to kind of what you're describing here, the complexity and the ability to really modify incentives depending on the different complexities and your situation you're trying to target. And obviously, to your point, there's a lot of good work from the likes of Kevin Volk at um, at University of Pennsylvania, where they're doing a lot of health incentives and looking at how, mm -hmm. how using different health incentives can boost long-term quit rate in smoking and, and different type of things as well. So, so yeah, I really enjoy, and I, I honestly, I could speak much more <laughs> about incentives with you guys. It definitely is clear that you guys know a lot about it. So yeah, well, well, yeah. Just, I want to say that the, the coolest stuff that's happening right now is uh, Pope and Delavinia's work are, is fantastic, and and of course Yana Gallas at at uh, USC uh, or UCLA, excuse me. I, I think that they're they're really they're taking the incentive work to the next level. Fantastic. Well, we're gonna segue now into segment you might have been familiar with if you listen to Tyler Cowan, because I've borrowed this segment somewhat from his podcast. So it's overrated and underrated. And the whole idea is that overrated versus underrated is, is this kind of quick fire round where I'm going to go through some questions and uh, list a couple of things. And you will then decide if you think it's overrated, underrated, or correctly rated by 
the field or society. And uh, so I encourage controversy here. So <laughs> if you stay too many correctly rated, I might give you a contrarian nudge and to be a little more clear. <laughs> But I don't Bring think it on, Samuel. You know, we are from Minnesota, Minnesota nice. We, we, you know, controversy isn't in our blood. So <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll see if try. I, if we'll, I bring we'll out the, the nudge there. But uh, the first one maybe set you up for a little bit of, uh, of that. So the first one is Drive by Daniel Pink, the book. Overrated or underrated? Okay, I'm going to start. I think it's overrated. Uh, I think Daniel's a, a, he, Dan's a fantastic journalist. He took a very small... Uh, segment of the work on incentives and blew it into something that made it sound like it was much more important than it deserved to be. Uh, and I will actually say underrated, and I'm going to go a different way on this, because what I think Drive did was it got the concept of of non uh, like some of these incentives and, and intrinsic in- incentives into the vernacular of business and executives read that book where they wouldn't ever read a paper from Lowenstein or from Thaler or different things, but they read that book and all of a sudden they're going, oh, so there's other ways of motivating people beyond money? Mm, well, tell me more about this. And it's very interesting. And while I agree with Tim that he took a very thin slice and kind of extrapolated it out and said, you know, the the after 70,000, you know, money isn't a motivator. And that's very controversial in there, but he got the discussion going. So I will say underrated on that one. Awesome. That's great. And so we're actually going to move to something that you touched upon a little bit. And so you're both based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Are you both born yeah. and raised as well? No, no, neither of us. Okay. We'll see how this goes then, because there's going to be some questions a little bit themed based on Minnesota. <laughs> okay. The first one is uh, the film Fargo, underrated or overrated? <laughs> underrated it's it's one of the best films ever underrated and, exactly yeah yeah totally it's fantastic coen brothers are magnificent they're artists yeah fantastic and they nailed the accent i mean perfectly <laughs> they did because so, i was just gonna yeah. ask you is it true that people are saying ja instead of you know is that a thing oh you betcha ja? there eh? Hey, yeah we're gonna go out on the boat and have some toast eh? <laughs> yeah you that, bet yes Yes, there, it there does. are people that that talk like that. Now you, you yep. get in Minneapolis, and that's not going to be the Less. case. But you know, you do find those people. Yes, fantastic. Well, it makes me happy. Obviously, that actually watching a movie got me really curious about why people said "yeah," and uh, that's how I learned about <laughs> the Swedish influx into Minnesota and the Scandinavian yeah. history there, which is a big deal. Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah so that, for the people that. listening, "yeah" is how you say "yes" in Swedish. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, next one. Cognitive biases, overrated or underrated? Oh, how can you how can you underrate a cognitive bias, and how could you overrate it? I don't know. I I, I mean that I, I don't know. I, I'm I, I'm I'm at a loss because that feels like. Are we talking about the promotion of cognitive biases or the existence of them? I can <laughs> specify the question a little bit more. So great. Cognitive biases, as talked about and used within the field of applied behavior science. Mm. Appropriate. I, I put it in the middle. I'd say I'd say appropriately used. Okay. I, I would I would say overrated because I think they're important, but I think we tend to behavioral science particularly becomes this list of cognitive biases, which is you, you can uh, you have cognitive biases that you apply in certain instances and then in not instances, and then they're contrary to other cognitive biases. 
And so if you, if it's just becomes this list of cognitive biases that we have, you're not taking in the breadth or the contextual importance of, of what behavioral science is. And I think for too many people, they go out to Wikipedia, they search through the cognitive biases on, on Wikipedia and they go, Oh, availability heuristic. This is, this is what is applying here. And you're going, it's a little bit more than that. Right. So I would say it's Context overrated. Matters. I would say it's yeah. overrated. Great. So next one, actually now. We're going to go to a little bit of what you mentioned before, Kurt. I'm going to do a little bit of a face-off here. So um, given that this has an award-themed episode in itself, I thought it'd be interesting to see who's the most Scandinavian Minnesotan of, of you two. Ah. Oh, that's Kurt. Well, <laughs> that we'll see. Kurt. We'll see. We'll see. I'm okay. going to ask you three questions or one question each first, and then we'll see with the, the last one. And we're going to see, okay, who, who knows their Scandinavian uh, stuff best? Oh, oh crap. <laughs> so so who wants to start? Kurt should start. I'll start. Okay. First question to you, Kurt. Which Swedish company is famous for its stylish but cheap products? IKEA. Well, you made a mistake there, Kurt. Oh god. Because if I had finished that sentence, I would have said that has exported Scandinavian fashion to the world. HM. HM. <laughs> And that's a little bit of, of a kind of a, a kind of showing that Swedish export actually has two companies doing the exact same thing in two yeah. different industries. So they're doing the same thing, cheap but stylish in IKEA and H&M, mm-hmm. and it's been working pretty well. So, yeah. sorry, Kurt, uh, leaves Tim up here to steal the lead here. <laughs> so I got it right. on the. I, I, uh, oh man, right. it's my jumping in to before the end of the question. That was my too eager, too eager. Yeah. So. Uh, thanks to the Thor Marvel franchise, many are familiar with Thor and his brother Loki. Sadly, however, Odin gets a little bit of a second seat, or he doesn't get maybe the attention he deserves. And so for the Vikings, Odin was the greatest god and was called the one-eyed father. So my question is to you, Tim, what did he lose his eye for? I don't know. I don't know how he lost his eye. He was, he was you know, he's the, the master of the deep. And uh, and I, I certainly have a lot of respect for Odin because I, I like to be out on the water, so I, I certainly take care. But I don't know why. No, I'm a I have I score zero on that. Yeah. So the right re- answer is knowledge. So he sacrificed it for knowledge. So for Odin, no sacrifice was too great for wisdom. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Love that. Learn yeah. something new. There you go. And. This actually does set you up for a really good last question here. So you both are at zero. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so you, of course, have the football team, Minnesota Vikings, right? Yeah. Yes. yes. So my question is, wh- when did the Vikings first set foot in North American soil? So you both have to give me a date of when you think a year, the year that Vikings first set their foot. Uh, I I have a date in mind. I have a date in mind too, so you won't influence me. So go ahead. Okay, okay. So I think I think it was around the the seventh century. I think it was somewhere in the six hundreds. I will say ten twenty four. Ten one thousand twenty four. Yeah. Wow. Okay, Kurt. Congratulations. You are the winner of the most Scandinavian Minnesota. (laughs) Are you playing the Leif Erikson card? Is that it? Yes. Yeah. 
And and they they How weren't do we even know he was the first six hundred. Tim, come on, the no, Vikings was, were they weren't even sailing past Norway. Yes, by then. they were. They had fantastic boats four hundred years before that. No, they they didn't reach England <laughs> until nine hundred. Come on, get your Viking lore. So so to Tim's point, there is there is some some controversy. There is some debates, but the only real you know established date is is Newfoundland and Leif Erikson. Yeah. So. Credit to both of you guys. You were both great sports, uh, but I have to give the the, the win to. Woo-hoo! I'm putting so, that on my resume this this time. <laughs> this, time. this time, this time, I want to rematch. I am the most Scandinavian of the <laughs> behavior groups duo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to try to get us back to the the overrated, underrated, and I'm going to say prime me, mm. overrated or underrated within the field of applied behavior science. Underrated. I, I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm a big priming buff. So yeah, I, I would agree. I'd say underrated. I think there's so much that has not yet been discovered about priming that it's, it's fantastic and and wide, bigger than we think it is. Oh. It had a tough time, you know, obviously with the priming chapter in yeah, thinking fast and slow, and that's one of those tricky things where a few bad apples can lead to everyone thinking that the whole bunch is, is bad, right? Well, and, and, and obviously, obviously there's the replication work, right? And so you, you yeah. have some really high-profile studies that just have not replicated. The, you know, the, for instance, John Barg and the old age walking down near Hall, timing that, being, being primed for that, has, has not replicated, has, has been tried multiple times to be replicated and just hasn't. And so, so what's going on there, right? right? Some of those pieces. And some of them are are pretty far fetched, right? You, you you're drawing some pretty really long leaps of of different pieces, but there have been more than enough research that does show that these there there are some really powerful effects on this, and and not just in the lab that there are some of these that are in real world context. Gary Latham has done a lot of work in the field that is actually out there in organizations in. Uh, as we say, the wild, and and you can see a dramatic increase. That that isn't just a, you know the the p values aren't just there. There are some major impacts on performance when some of these things get get taken into account, and so they're significant. And so I think that part, again, to your point, that it's gotten a bad rap because of a few studies that just have not replicated, and probably rightfully so that they haven't replicated. They might have pushed the envelope a little too far. Well, I will say that this will be an amazing show notes because I feel like you're dropping a lot of good studies here. <laughs> I got to say, in the wild? Who says in the wild? Where did that come from? John Krakauer <laughs> says in the wild. Come on, what are you talking about? Into the wild, I guess. Well, I we're talk, talking about a little bit of uh, getting maybe into more of the wilder than at least the behavioral offices. The last one, the last overrated, unrated is live music. Overrated or unrated? Oh. Oh, no, you go ahead, Kurt. You go right ahead. Live music is underrated. Yes, that is. Yeah. It's damn underrated. Definitely. We we take it for granted, I think. And in during COVID times, I think we're understanding the importance, the very evolutionarily important aspect of live performance and the impact that it has on community is uh, it's deeply missing from our world right now. Uh, at least still in still in Minnesota, I know that there are some parts of the world that have kind of gotten back to it. But but in Minnesota, we're we're still in lockdown, 
and we're back in lockdown, I should say, there's no live performance going on. And so it's really, we really miss live music. Yeah. Ditto. Yeah. Well, obviously I know some people know as well. Uh, I think Tim, especially you're not only listening to it, but you will as well be on the stage performing, right? I haven't had a gig since January. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I, and I miss, I miss it from a performing perspective, mm-hmm. but I, I miss going out to see, I, you know, have a, uh, have a lot of friends in the community that are really great performers that I really love to see. And I, and I haven't been able to see them perform and that that's really sad. Uh, so, uh, and, and again, there's a community aspect that goes along with performing that brings people together when, when you've got, you know, uh, 80 or 180 or 580 or a thousand or 2000 people in a room together, experiencing what a performer or an artist is doing. That is a cohesive moment. That's a very cohesive experience uh, from a community perspective. And I think that that our societies are suffering by not having that right now. Our cultures are suffering by not having that right now. Yeah, yeah no, I 100% agree. And I uh, would love to at some point stop by Minneapolis and, and experience it firsthand as well. That would be amazing. Yes, come, come, yeah. please come. I've you heard have great invitation. things. I've heard great things. It's a good music scene. It really is, yeah. yes. I'm surprised you didn't ask about Prince, actually, and you're overrated, underrated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what, what would be your answer? Uh, I, I think Prince is still underrated. As big of a star as he is, um, I happen to have the opportunity of, of recording at uh, his studio uh, many years ago. I, I did some work at Paisley Park, and he's one of the hardest working and most creative uh, individuals that I've ever encountered. He's really he was really quite a remarkable man. And I, I, I still think that there's more creativity to plumb from, from his body of work. Mm. Yeah. Kurt, you disagree? I, I Just being from Minneapolis, I think he's overrated in Minneapolis and maybe Minnesota in general, but probably underrated in throughout the rest of the world. So there's a, there's a little cult to Prince here. I would, you know, you have radio shows that are literally, you know, Prince shows there's radio stations, online radio stations that are just devoted to Prince by our local wow. radio stations. So wow. Prince 100% of the time, all day, every day, you know, that's just a little too well, much. That's too much for me too. <laughs> I, I, I can't have 100% Beatles or 100% Bach or 100% of anybody. I think that's too much. Yeah. Well, don't say that. Abba, I listen to 24 hours a day. <laughs> Who do you listen to 24 hours a day, Samuel? Abba. Yeah. Abba? No, I'm joking. I'm joking. But, okay. Uh, <laughs> it's so, perfect. So, so the, the reason why I wanted to talk uh, about like music and general music is having a somewhat of a like, grooving session here, a little bit talking about music at the end, and lead into what has not been talked about yet right now in the podcast, uh, which is your podcast, Behavioral Grooves Podcast. And so the last thing here I want to bring up is some of the reason why you're here is because you are officially the best. <laughs> You've won the Happy yes. Weekly Award for the best podcast of the year as voted by thousands of people around the world and with very stiff competition. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I'm amazed. I'm still kind of just, wow, really? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm just amazed that we were nominated and then, you know, to, to win is just a fantastic 
you know, just uh, still don't don't really believe it. I mean, my God, up against Katie Milkman and David Hobson. Yeah, I mean, yeah. all of and, you know, all of the, the wonderful podcasts that were up. Melinda, nomination, yeah. Melinda, you know, so and they're great. They're they're all fantastic people. They really are. And they do really good work. And we love all of their work as well. And I'm not saying that just to blather on, but we are inspired by their work. We, we absolutely are. Uh, and we, we listen to them critically and we listen to them as, as in a collegial way as well. Well, and a, we've had, really we've good. had many of them on as guests. So, that, yeah. you know, part of this is, is we respect their work. So, yep. yeah. Yeah. Well, but, I think, the, uh, I think you, you do still should feel that you definitely deserve this. I think, I, I think you talking about music. I feel like you should feel like the celebration music is playing now. The confetti is raining down. <laughs> because you know i'm honestly not surprised about your success in some ways in terms of i remember i think i listened to maybe the 10th episode of the podcast when i kind of got on board oh my god and wow. it was very wow. clear to me that talking about priming that you were primed for success <laughs> in <laughs> this medium because you know both with tim's music background and i think in general your chemistry and warm and wonderful kind of uh, connection and friendship it really shines through and it's always, always fun to listen to. So I know also that it goes into this, like what goes into this podcast, a lot of hard work, a lot of time and creating something on a higher level on a consistent basic basis is not easy. So yeah, I just want to say that I'm never left disappointed listening to payroll groups and that says quite a bit. And for me, I just want to say also representing the field, thank you for your wonderful work. Oh, well, thank you. That's, thank you. Yeah. This is, it, it's a great honor. It's, uh, it just to, to your point, we, we put a lot of work in. Tim, uh, I, I just have to shout out. Tim does a ton of work on the back end that, that I don't and makes this, makes the podcast what it is. It, it wouldn't be the same without that. And so, uh, accolades going out to him and, and to all our wonderful guests. Cause really the, the, the podcast is only as good as the people that we get on, such as you, such as Katie, you know, Milkman plus, you know, all of the other wonderful guests that we've had. And so it, it really is a testament to just them and, and to the hard work that, that goes into that. Yeah. I, I yeah, I, I just want to say thing. It's very, it's, it's really fun to be acknowledged in this way and uh, thanks for your kind words samuel it's it's very very kind of you and i don't believe that the award has actually ended up in your mailboxes yet right not, not yet not yet I, I'm, I'm i'm a little you know anticipating what this is going to be because you, you you will not share so i'm, nope. I'm a little on pins and needles yeah, expect like expectations should always be low, right? So expect expect, <laughs> expect an empty envelope. Uh, okay, okay, yeah. but but, but uh, right. we'll see. We'll see if you appreciate it. I think it's going to be a fun one. It, is it a Swedish fish? Is it one of those candies kind of thing? Yeah, it's not a Swedish fish and not Swedish herring as well. That would be... <laughs> hey, we, we we eat lutefisk here in 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 Minnesota. So no way. Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, a, yeah. Well, we I don't, but you know, I don't other, either. Other people do. <laughs> So when you say we, it's very loosely you. Yeah, there's a certain population within Minnesota. So, so. fantastic. Well, yeah. I, obviously, thank you guys. It was really fun to have this conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time, and I look forward to continue to enjoy your 
wonderful work uh, every week on your podcast. So thanks again. Well, it's our pleasure. And we continue to look forward to the wonderful habit weekly because they're, it's fabulous. It, it's, you, you curate great stuff and we're always, I, I always look forward to, to getting it on Sunday nights. That's, it's fantastic. So thank you, Samuel. All right, another episode in the bag. We are definitely building momentum here. There will be a few more episodes out in the coming days as we're looking to finish the year strong. It should be said that this whole podcast thing is still new for me, and I'm very open to hearing how this podcast experience could be improved. So please, if you feel like, send me an email or shoot me a message easiest way to get in touch with me is through the Habit Weekly website. So you can click contact and just fill in the form and I will receive your messages. So if you're so inclined, please do so. We're just getting started here and I'm really looking to make sure that this is the best podcast that it can possibly be. Okay, for now though, I wish you a great day and happy holidays.